0: This is Bloomberg Business Week
1: from Bloomberg
0: Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly.
2: And I'm Taylor Riggs. In for Carol Master. welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more.
0: And in this week's broadcast, Taylor, Brexit, space, And the Planet Fitness CEO. We're all over the place.
2: We are. Plus, WeWork, of course, wants to become its own landlord. And it's this week's cover story. But first, Jason, Uber has had some struggle since going public.
0: So, Taylor, the Uber IPO, so highly anticipated. And I think if there were a sound effect, it would be... I know.
2: You know, so interesting, though, about the IPO, maybe not indicative of the company's future. That, of course, is up for debate. And really, the IPO for me was about the bankers versus the company and then really the bankers versus the investors.
0: Exactly. Not a great look for Wall Street, certainly. Shanali Basak is here. She's been tracking this tick by tick, minute by minute, working on the behind the scenes story. So, Wall Street, the blame game has started. What happened?
3: Um, It's funny you say tick by tick. I was at the stock exchange the morning of the listing and it was rising the price until all of a sudden it wasn't. And you looked around and everybody was kind of looking at each other like, what's going on? What do we do? Yeah. And so now what happens is in some ways this IPO was considered a success in the sense that they raised $45 a share for Uber. They raised more than $8 billion and that for the company was a great thing. Uber has some things to be happy about. But since the stock is has been falling after, usually an IPO is supposed to pop, there are a lot of questions about whether this was overpriced in the first place, and investors have clearly lost some faith, at at least in the near term.
2: I want to go back to that feeling on the ground at the floor of the stock exchange (laughs) when it was priced, because we were all watching it, you know, as you saw it fall, uh, indicated open. What was the feeling on the ground there?
3: there was Uber Eats all over the place being delivered to traders and then all of a sudden I remember listening as the stock was starting to drop it was up all morning right it was over the IPO price and then when it started to drop I heard a trader go "Go! that's what you get when you don't turn a profit and so I right so it was something where all of a sudden the sentiment turned right it didn't matter before right obviously the stock was rising there's been so much money pouring into this company for so many years remember right. remember how many pre-IPO rounds there were this was supposed to be one of the biggest listings ever. And certainly something that we'll be looking to to prop up the IPO market moving
0: forward. And so the size and scope of this was one of the reasons why it was so competitive to get this assignment from the perspective of big Wall Street banks. They live for this, for the cachet, also for the fees. Of course, Morgan Stanley led the deal. What are they saying? Publicly, and then what are people saying behind the scenes?
3: Publicly, they're saying absolutely nothing. But behind the scenes, what our sources are telling us that Uber hasn't really blamed Morgan Stanley for anything. We have a number of investors who are pretty upset because they do feel that the price should have been probably lower. Maybe the bankers overhyped the company. There was a point last year where Morgan Stanley and all the other lead bankers wanted a hundred twenty billion dollar valuation. Obviously, that was rosy. There's a lot of pressure on these bankers to please the company to win the deal and keep that value up. And so, you know, behind. scenes really people are blaming the market Mm. and that's certainly true right and this is why the long term is going to matter than this past week has been this past week has been Bad And so obviously this week is bad, but Morgan Stanley has said that this could be a stock that could be one of the next fangs, could be like the next Facebook.
2: Well, like you said, Uber, the company is happy being priced at $45 a share. But what does this mean for the bankers' relationship with the investors? Because arguably these are investors that they're going to have to tap again five, 10 years down the road for the next big IPO.
3: This is a really complicated question, right? Because for Uber, one of the big problems in this listing was that Fidelity, Wellington, a lot of um, high net worth individuals were already investors in Uber. So even tapping them in the first place for a lot of money was a little bit challenging. And then honestly, these retail investors want a chance to invest in these this great new I I met a guy um, at business school over the weekend who was saying he bought one share (laughs) just to have one share. Right. And so again, Facebook was also a flop. I don't know if everyone remembers it it fell um, kind of in the later days of trading and Now, if you – I was talking to a business school professor at the University of Florida, and he was saying that he sold his stock at the time. And when he looks back at it, he wishes he kept it. Yeah. So, it's really hard to tell right now whether this is going to be seen as one of the worst IPOs in history or one of the greatest tech stories of all time.
0: Right. Well, and – If nothing else, it was seen as we ran up to this as something of a bellwether for this year of the IPO, the year of the unicorn. What does it tell us about that market going forward? Because- this was the big kahuna.
3: This was a big kahuna. Something interesting about this big kahuna is what we were saying earlier about how it went public so late into yeah. the financing rounds. There are so many people on Wall Street and so many people, um, even in the SEC, really, that are trying to give more people access to these companies earlier. So does that mean more companies um, direct list, right? We were seeing some direct listings. and Slack
0: is, gonna Slack is, is right? going to direct list. Is that right? Slack is to direct
3: list. They're slated for the end of June. And the success of that is going to be really key because we're going to want to see a successful direct listing to see if more more early stage companies will consider that as a new route as well. And then get therefore give more people access to these companies earlier on.
2: I think all of this comes down to the basic idea is what is the path to profitability? And the reason we're all having this discussion is because frankly, they're losing billions of dollars a year, negative free cash flow, tons of CapEx. What is their path to profitability and when? That's, that's
3: the
0: real
2: question, right? But the thing is, if you look back at all the IPOs this year, for example,
3: Uber and Lyft are really the ones that are really falling here. Yeah, so, yeah
0: look at Beyond Meat. I mean, that one was soaring. amazing.
3: Mm-hmm. It's soaring. Um, Pinterest is doing quite well also. And so, right, at the end of the day, it's bread and butter financials, right? If you show us a path to profitability, then there's a way to kind of turn things around or be in, be the next Amazon <laughs> right. and find us a way to show that you have a sustainable business model that can maybe do multiple things.
0: That's Shanali Bosick. And Taylor, such a smart story because we've watched the stock price really fall. It's come back a, a little bit, but we know from covering Wall Street as much as we do, a lot of fingers being pointed right now.
2: Well, it is. And it's not only you know Uber versus the bankers, but really the bankers now versus their own investors.
0: Exactly. Great point. So, Taylor, one of the most fascinating stories in the magazine this week takes place in China, and it has to do with A think tank, essentially. I did not see this one coming.
2: Well, I really liked it, especially in the midst of where we are today within the trade fights and learning a little bit more about Xi Jinping, the president of China, and sort of his thoughts on everything that's going on, particularly as it comes to China's domestic economy.
0: Matt Campbell is one of the authors of this story, joins us from Singapore. So, Matt, how did you come
4: on to this story? Well, uh, what's been going on with this think tank, uh, who are called the the UniRule Institute of Economics, is something that's been uh, known about among uh, people in the economics community in China, among sort of China watchers in the West. So, uh, what has been happening to these guys is is not a secret, and they were, and and are, uh, quite prominent among the more influential of the think tank community in China, a very rare, uh, independent economic policy voice. Uh, And so their silencing or their near silencing uh, was something that that was really noticed among uh, those who care about what's going on in the Chinese economy.
2: And talk to me about the transformation of UniRule, if you will, from really how it was a decade ago to really in the most recent years under President Xi Jinping and sort of how that has changed.
4: Well, uh, Taylor, this is an organization that uh, attained a, a sort of mainstream status uh, for quite a while. Uh, as China opened up in the 90s uh, and, and remained open in the 2000s, uh, they were a part of the intellectual conversation around economics. Uh, they also had a consulting business that uh, had clients who included government ministries in certain cases. So uh, this is a group who uh, you know, had every expecta- expectation that they had attained a, a sort of centrality to the discussion in China, a certain uh, protection from the vagaries of, of political repression, uh, and, and found that uh, very rapidly taken away over the last few years. Well, and Matt, as you... So well described in your story,
0: well regarded in China, seemingly, and also very well connected throughout the rest of the world. The central figure who you spoke with—he, you know, was a visiting scholar at Harvard, uh, I believe—and you know, a well-known name among economic circles, as you said uh, at the top. What have people outside of China said as this <laughs> rapid? fall from grace has happened?
4: Well, Jason, uh, as you mentioned, Mao Yuxi, who, who was one of the co-founders of Unirul, he's now 90 years old, uh, has, has something of a following both in China and the West. Uh, in 2012, Uh, He was given an award uh, by the Cato Institute, a very prominent libertarian think tank uh, in Washington. Uh, And among the sort of uh, libertarian, uh, center-right economics community, uh, he's quite well-known. As you can imagine, there is a lot of distress at what's happened at UniRule in the economics world. Uh, Scholars who study the Chinese economy are uh, very upset uh, at this voice potentially uh, going quiet uh, and also concerned about uh, what it means and and what it signals about the scope for uh, rational and and, uh, factual economic debate uh, within China and the uh, ability to do so uh, in a way that's not vetted by the government.
2: Well, and a lot of the quieting of the voice really does come from one person, right? And that's China's president, Xi Jinping. How has his personality sort of come to light as you were researching this story and really how he's been really the driving influence of this?
4: Well, Taylor, there has been a a significant narrowing in China of the space uh, for civil society uh, of all kinds over the last several years. I I think uh, many of the people who look at this very closely would say that these were trends that probably uh, slightly predated uh, Xi Jinping taking power in 2012, uh, but they've certainly accelerated over the last several years. Uh, This is happening with NGOs, it's happening uh, with the press, uh, it is happening uh, with uh, public life in general, that that the, the avenues for Uh, speech, for debate, uh, for analysis that don't run through the government and run through the Communist Party are just getting smaller and smaller. And UniRule is is one of the organizations that's been squeezed incredibly hard uh, as those shrink. And so, you know, within this story, Matt,
0: you know, you have some descriptions of this guy currently. I mean, it's sort of Chilling, all, almost. You know the way you describe. You know where he is, his life. You know the conversation, even with his wife, in terms of what he should be saying, what he what he shouldn't be saying. Is there any sense that this may change going forward? Is any hope uh, that maybe the government relents a little bit?
4: Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, one thing we've seen in the last, uh, call it six months is a bit more uh, noise from uh, the Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, and and other senior officials about uh, praising entrepreneurship, praising markets, uh, beginning to de-emphasize somewhat uh, the uh, promotion of state-owned enterprises that we saw prior to that. So it does seem like uh, there is a slight shift in tone. Uh, Some of that may be spurred by pressure from Washington. As, As you know, the Trump administration very much wants market-oriented reforms in China. So uh, the atmosphere is changing a little bit, but uh, what will not change, or certainly is very unlikely to change, uh, is the notion that uh, to speak from anything but uh, the the government songbook is is dangerous and and needs to be stopped. So uh, internal repression has ramped up in many respects. Uh, This is just one of them. Uh, but it, it does interact in interesting ways with uh, the broader economic picture in China and, and indeed with the trade war.
2: Well, and going along with that, there were some other think tanks in the story that you mentioned Consensus, Net, I believe, Thinking, Transition Institute. Have they had a similar story as UNIROL in terms of the, the chilling effect that Jason describes about really allowing you to have freedom of speech, if you will?
4: Well, there have been a number of other examples of organizations or independent media outlets being silenced or marginalized in China. Uh, that has happened uh, on several occasions. It's happened particularly in the NGO world. But one of the interesting things about Unirule, Taylor, is that they are, they are still in business. Uh, this is a country where, you know, if the government wants to shut you down, uh, they can shut you down. And indeed, they can put you in jail if they really want. Uh, but Unirule has not had that happen to them. They're still up and running, although uh, just barely hanging on. Uh, the staff uh, are walking free. Uh, they are occasionally uh, harassed a little bit, but they are, you know, certainly not in jail. And so that, that I think, speaks to an important uh, point about what is going on in China, which is, you know, there are limits. Uh, there are uh, often places where the government does not want to go. Uh, there are ways to influence what happens. And, and Unirule is an example uh, of the fact that this is a... While this is a country where uh, the avenues for speech are certainly narrowing, uh, it's not always quite a black and white picture.
2: That's Matthew Campbell. And Jason, this story was so interesting because it was really a lot of these economists that had tied to Boston and the Cato Institute and Harvard and really being shunned by China now.
0: Right. And you get a different sort of look at President Xi and how he is running the country going forward. All right. So the robots are coming, apparently, Taylor, and 5G is enabling A huge amount of infrastructure, really, around robots coming into our lives. Well, and
2: what I loved about this is when we think 5G, we think just our mobile phones. And there are so many other implications for 5G. Like you said, robots, AI, the list goes on.
0: So let's go to South Korea. Dimitri Kessanidis is here with us. 5G robots. What's happening?
5: Well, South Korea is kind of where 5G is being rolled out nationwide right now, right? There are carriers, their mobile carriers all in April, um, set target dates. And I think it just happened in the last couple of weeks. So we see 5G happening in other places, but South Korea is where it's like everywhere. And they, the, it's all about speed, right? These are speeds that are like a gazillion times faster than 4G, 3G, 2G. And it's really enabling us to Do something that we never thought before, like the speed is enabling the the creation of robots and other just, you know, machines that will make life so much easier.
0: Because I have to say, I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting my head around how much faster it is because, you know, 3G to 4G, you're like, yeah, it's a little bit faster, but this is really... This a, is a, a, re- leap in a some ways. really,
5: yeah, it's a substantial jump. It's something like 20 times faster. And, you know, you can download an entire movie in like the, uh, sp- the span of a second or two seconds or something like that. I mean, we're talking about really quite a difference from 4G. And when you think about how recently we were just at 2G and yeah. 3G, it's really groundbreaking. So you have companies like Samsung and LG and Hyundai and others who are really looking at the opportunities here to go beyond what they're traditionally creating. I mean, we see robots that are now being designed for use in autonomous cars. Um, Beyond the autonomy of the driving itself, uh, robots that will interact with humans, and this is a big focus right now, too, is this idea that, like, it's something you can interact with, that you should be able to have, like, you know, an emotional connection. with your robot. That sounds insane,
2: by the way. So talk to me more about that because we've talked about how 5G and the increased speed, and then we bring in robots. So how does this all connect? What do we really want those robots to be doing?
5: Well, you know, for example, in instances where let's move away from autos for a minute and think about how robots might be useful in helping the elderly or people with certain health needs, um, AI is being brought into sort of the mix so that a robot can really come to understand the particulars of the individual it is serving and vice versa, so that it can pick up on voice changes and body changes in a way that it can really be useful to deliver medicine more immediately, let's say, or step in and do something. Like this is happening in the cars too, right? Like we talk in the story about how um, these robots that are being developed are going to be very useful, for example, so that it can detect whether a driver has fallen asleep you know, um, the drivers that are the ones that are supposed to be kind of monitoring what's going on with the autonomous driving. Uh, But, you know, there are many different ways. So it's not just like, I want to like my robot and be friends with my robot, but it's it's training over time, this bot and this machine to really be able to pick up on signals and on cues and to be more responsive in whatever the situation is that it is being placed in. And so-
0: South Korea's role in all of this, as you mentioned, they are around the corner really from many of many other uh, markets out there. Why is that? And and how far ahead are they? When does this get to the rest of the world? Do you have a sense of that?
5: Well, 5G is trickling out in other places in the rest of the world right now as we speak, right? Verizon has announced recently how it's planning its rollout. And again, it's it's a more piecemeal, sort of modest rollout. Um, South Korea just always has been very technologically ahead of the game with a lot of things. And because of the companies that are native to the country, Mm -hmm. like the Samsungs of the world and the LGs and the Hyundais, uh, they just really saw this opportunity, I think, very early and started investing in it in a way where they could just apply it across the country because they also really do see an opportunity for them economically to change the future of the country, um, to address uh, joblessness in certain sectors, to address uh, jobs that are very dangerous for humans. There was a report just two days ago where the military in South Korea now is talking about how it's going to develop robots, even beyond the point where they have been developed because we've seen them in those situations, but ones in which they can go into very high danger situations. And they will change completely the kinds of defense, you know, um, uh, spending that the country is investing in because the robots are going to change everything. So they're just, uh, they they just, I think, I mean, I, I there's probably more to it that I'm not knowledgeable about, but I think they were very ahead of the yeah. game. Uh, AT&T, you know, in this country and Verizon, again, they've been rolling it out modestly. AT&T has this like 5G-E, which is not full power 5G. It's like, it's almost there, but not quite. So it's marginally faster than 4G, but not quite where 5G is going to be. And I think that that was just something where they decided, you know, they would they would start to move towards this so they wouldn't get lost in the mix of like who's doing
0: 5G right now. That's Dimitri Kessanidis and Taylor. I have to say, when I think 5G, I think oh. Data downloading faster. I don't necessarily go to robots.
2: Right. Well, and it's so crazy now the power that these robots can have, not only on an emotional scale, but you have AI, you have holograms. I learned so much more about what 5G is.
0: So, Taylor, the global cover this week, it's all about WeWork, a name very familiar to anyone. Around a major city these days.
2: Well, and it's so crazy because you think maybe it's a real estate company, but it's also putting it sort of in a class like Uber, where it seems a little bit technology too. their balance sheets look similar in that they're both losing tons of money. So certainly will be very, very interesting if or when they go public.
0: And a big personality underneath all of it. Ellen Hewitt is joining us from San Francisco. You went inside into the belly of the beast. (laughs) What did you find?
6: So the cover story is about WeWork, and and it addresses, I think, a a few major questions that many people have about WeWork, which is, can it make it work? And as part of exploring that, we talked about this new fund that WeWork is raising, which is called ARC. And part of WeWork's needs, you know, this is an office rental company, so they take long leases from landlords and then rent out parcels, again, to smaller businesses or even actually enterprise businesses. Um, But this new thing that they're talking about is ARC, which is an outside real estate fund. So these are going to be outside investors off of WeWork's balance sheet, raising money to buy buildings that WeWork will then be a major tenant in. So this is sort of a set of, um, you know, financial gymnastics, I believe we call it in the story, to, to give WeWork access to more money and more space, which are things that its CEO told me it really needs to grow. All right. So I want
0: to get into more details and the implications about that fund. But first, let's go back a little bit, because this is something of a cult of personality, it feels like. It sort of burst onto the scene with these workspaces that seem to be of the time in many ways, very attractive to millennials and drawing a lot of attention wherever they go, both for the scale of the project, but also for the feel. Tell us about that.
6: Yeah, WeWork has this aesthetic that I think is, like you said, very much of the times and to be fair, it is this, it's is this—it's really unusual, and, and most office spaces and most office space competitors, they kind of do four walls and a floor, you know, and, and WeWork has really overturned that, and I think they get a lot of credit for it, and they should, because their aesthetic and their approach to what an office should feel like is really different, and it has clearly resonated with a lot of Um, companies um, from big to small, right? Anyone from freelancers to companies like Facebook, Amazon, um, Salesforce, these are big enterprise customers of WeWork as well. So When you think about a WeWork space, it's, you know, it's low slung couches, it's airy lighting, it's office plants. They love office plants. You know, they're also known for having beer in their offices, coffee, just sort of the amenities that make it feel kind of buzzy, alive, exciting. You know, when we talked to one of the investors in this um, outside fund, he was saying, you know, WeWork seems to have this recipe that makes people Actually excited to be at work and and excited to be around each other and and I do think they have managed to capture something about that and it, and it can come across as this kind of this strong aesthetic as well you know they're known and I think sometimes lightly mocked for having a lot of slogans on their walls about you know respect the hustle welcome you know you're in the right place things like that that are are both um, you know sort of like embracing hard work and also wanting to have this sort of uh, joie de vivre and spirit to it. Uh, and it, it's very it's very much different from other office spaces. And I think that's what people think of when they think of WeWork.
2: Ellen, as you were talking, you mentioned the companies like Amazon and Facebook. And the first thing that Jason and I immediately looked at each other was the names behind those companies. It's often the founder, the CEO of Mark Zuckerberg. It's really that personality that derives the culture of the company. Who's the founder and really the leader of WeWork that derives the culture of that company?
6: WeWork has two co-founders, But its CEO, uh, Adam Newman, is by far the big personality behind WeWork. He's the person that people think of. He's the face of the company. And and it's for a good reason. He has a big personality. He's very gregarious. He's very charming. He's known as this sort of fierce negotiator. Um, And he also has this sort of um, kumbaya spirit around him um, of wanting to really help people connect to their purpose, help people live better together. And one of the slogans that seems to represent what WeWork is going for is making a life, not just a living. And Adam Newman is, um, you know, he's someone who has 65% voting control of the company. So like these other companies, he has super voting shares. And it's very clear that he's the driving force behind a lot of decisions at the company. And in the the story, we try to explore his personality as well. I think he's just um, a little brash, but also very smart and and a very interesting figure. Right. And I mean, it's so that
0: I don't want to spoil too many of the details and the anecdotes in the story. People really need to read it. But you do such a good job of capturing who he is through his own words. And he seems to just sort of float through life in, in many ways. And yet, as you say, he's a tough negotiator. He's a savvy business person. And that sort of mode of living and working and leading has led him to some places where people have raised their eyebrows around his relationship to the company and some of its investments and its real estate. Tell us about that.
6: Yeah, he has definitely courted controversy uh, over the course of WeWork's nine years of existence. There are plenty of landlords who will privately tell you that they think that, um, you know, he has cut them out of deals or, or, or just been generally a menace to the traditional real estate uh, industry. And I, th- I think that's good. You know, this is a stodgy industry that is looking to... Um, Benefit from having something new, um, but he has also um, brought, I think, criticism onto WeWork for some of the choices he's made. So he also has been, um, so he has also owned stakes in buildings that have been leased by WeWork, and those are personal stakes of his. So this came to light last year, and it's been, a, uh, it's been, a note of criticism against the company for a long time, which is that this is sort of a self-dealing um, kind of setup, and I think in the real estate industry, that's kind of par for the course or it seemed to raise fewer eyebrows. But WeWork also wants to be seen as a tech company and Mm. tech companies the the expectations are different. And so that was definitely something that stuck with the company and it's something that ARC, this new fund, is hoping to address. So the fund is run by the We company which is the the new term for WeWork. Um, It's part of WeWork but it's also separate and the plan is for Adam to sell his stakes in these WeWork rented buildings at cost into this fund. And he emphasizes in our story that this is going to mean um, a personal loss for his personal investments, but that he thinks it's the right thing to do and that hopefully this will put his holdings at more of an arm's length um, so that it doesn't seem like the, the company is renting from... Uh, its CEO as a landlord.
2: Right. Well, very interesting. I love how you brought it full circle for us there, coming back to the Arc Fund. And really, at the end of the day, Jason, maybe a technology company, but maybe just sort of a classic real estate company as well. So, Ellen, you've described a little bit for us um, about Arc Fund and sort of creating the arm's length distance between the CEO and sort of having an outside fund with outside investors. Doesn't this also come down to, at the end of the day, they had a problem getting some loans from banks as well, right?
6: Uh, Specifically, buildings with WeWork as a major tenant have sometimes had trouble getting loans from banks because those lenders believe that WeWork is too risky. So let's say you had a building with a lot of WeWork space in it. That might end up actually flagging something at your lender if you were trying to get a loan for the building. So the, it start, you're starting to see that the more that WeWork grows big and the more that it's becoming, you know, it's the biggest tenant in Manhattan, London, and Washington, D.C. and And the more that it spreads, the more people are starting to think, like it, this is just becoming a huge entity within real estate, and and they're trying to get their grips on whether this is a good idea to continue having such consolidation in in tenancy, um, and whether if in a downturn there might be um, repercussions that we we haven't seen yet.
0: So, Ellen, I have to ask you about the bottom line or maybe lack thereof in terms of profit. That's very top of mind for all of us as we're looking at Uber and, shall we say, its tepid response that it's getting from investors around its IPO. What's WeWork's plan to get to profitability and what's next as it thinks about going public?
6: And WeWork is thinking of going public. We recently learned that they filed confidentially for an IPO. So this is a very relevant question. WeWork lost $1.9 billion last year. And it doesn't really get asked often about its path to profitability. It uses this one metric called community-adjusted EBITDA that tries to capture whether it's individual buildings make a profit. It's individual um, buildings that haven't just opened, to be specific. And so that takes away all the expenses that they count when they look at growing into new markets, expanding um, some of the new business lines that they're working on. And, of course, if you cut out enough expenses, you can find um, a positive number. So community-adjusted EBITDA is... Um, you know they are, They're showing earnings in that way. But I, I think it comes with a lot of caveats. And, and people generally look at the company as a business that is in a stage where it is losing a lot of money. And it, it's not immediately clear how it's going to turn that around. Um, it, it does show that older and more established buildings tend to do better. But I think across the globe, they're also finding that as they expand into different countries, where people have more or less ability to pay for workspace, they're getting different um, revenue per member. That's a different metrics that they track. So the path forward is not so clear.
2: That's Ellen Hewitt. Jason, I love the story about WeWork. I always thought that they were a tech company. Turns out they're more and more actually just a plain old vanilla real estate company.
0: Right, and you and I have talked a lot this week about this story in part because it's got a fascinating leader. It's such ultimately a cult of personality. I loved reading this. So three years of uncertainty and it feels like we're not much further along. Brexit, the story that never ends. But what are the economic implications? How is this actually playing out? That's the subject of a story in the politics section this week. Joe Mays is the author. He joins us from London. So, Joe, how do you even get your arms around describing the impact of Brexit thus far?
7: I think there's kind of two ways of going about it. One way is to look at the macroeconomic data and see, you know, what have the impacts been? And the message is pretty clear. You know, growth has been lower than it would have otherwise been to the tune of, say, 2% of GDP. That's what Goldman Sachs says in the report. Inflation is up. The pound has gone down. Import costs are rising for firms. So that macroeconomic picture is one of of difficulty for Britain since it voted for Brexit. And the other way you can do it is by looking at at the firm level, what are companies specifically facing. And again the message and picture is somewhat grim in terms of having to prepare for a no deal Brexit. So we saw lots of firms having to stockpile goods for example which meant tying up cash that would otherwise be using for investment. You've seen companies have orders cancelled by European buyers because those European buyers are worried about new friction in trade that could happen after Brexit. So on those two ways of looking at it it's it's uh, it's, it's it's a difficult picture for Britain.
0: All right, so so let's get down into it and talk about some examples. You talk about some car makers, Nissan is one. How does that play out, for instance?
7: So the Nissan case is one where they were planning to build a new sports utility vehicle in Northeast England at its major plant in Sunderland, but they canceled that plan. And whilst they cited multiple factors, one of them is clearly that of Brexit insofar as the way in which potential trade barriers might emerge between Britain and the EU means it be much harder for Nissan to export those cars onto the continent. So when Nissan is deciding where it next wants to build that vehicle, the UK makes less sense in a, in a post-Brexit world. So that's that, that, that's that example. And an irony is that the town of Sunderland, where the Nissan factory is based, employs 7,000 people. It's the biggest employer in that town, and yet Sunderland voted for Brexit and quite overwhelmed So it's uh, it, it could be quite damaging for that town when that when that plays out in
0: the years to come. We are Bloomberg after all. So let's talk about the city of London. Let's talk about Wall Street banks and how they're dealing with this. I feel like every quarterly earnings call, we hear a question posed to the big global bank CEOs about what they're doing. They've made some actual moves so far.
7: Yes, exactly. So taking HSBC, for example, enormous Bank, they've had to move subsidiaries and setting up new units into the into the EU because after Brexit, they wouldn't have the same market access from the UK that they would have had before. So they've had to spend money on that to the tune of hundreds of millions of pounds. But it goes further than that. The likes of Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, they're in the process of shifting billions in assets onto the continent, again, to meet regulatory requirements there. And then you also have staff moving as well. You've seen employees from JP Morgan, for example, going from London to the likes of Frankfurt and Paris. So there's been multiple effects on the city of London and it has been a a negative one on the whole.
0: Well, and what's so interesting about that to me too is that you're talking about money moving and people moving. Who are the big winners in terms of where they're going? You mentioned Frankfurt, Paris, Dublin, I feel like, comes up in a lot, lot of conversations. Do you get a sense of you know, kind of where the net positives are.
7: I think you're completely right. The three biggest beneficiaries, I think, are the likes of Frankfurt, Paris, and Dublin. I think you should mention Amsterdam as well, because Amsterdam has seen, you've seen foreign exchange markets move there, debt markets too. So that's been another big beneficiary. Basically, it's the other major capitals in Europe, Berlin, another one that comes to mind. So it's those big cities that are benefiting at the expense of London.
0: Well, and one of the things you point out when you're talking about the banks is this, is that this isn't something where they can just sort of flip the switch and say, Just kidding. Come on back. The UK is not actually going to leave the EU after all. So just pretend it never happened. I mean, these are long term changes, right?
7: for sure and there's there's costs associated with moving there's a sort of a amount of hassle as well and there's a view which says that yes if you've gone to those efforts to make those moves why would you bring it back necessarily if you have new operations in the eu you can continue to trade within the eu as you want you'd stick with that why would you undo that process i think that is yes something that the, the uk will have to face up to and it's likely this could go on for you know the years to come as the effects of brexit are seen it could be a, a continuing trickle of impact like this which uh,
0: which went be great for the UK. You've seen the country stockpiling goods. What's the net effect of that?
7: So one irony is that the UK's economic performance in the first quarter of this year, at the very least, was helped by the fact all this stockpiling was going on because companies were producing more and more because there was demands from their customers because they wanted to hoard products and they were doing that because they were worried that if there were a no-deal Brexit, it would get harder to bring goods in from the European Union because there'll be extra custom checks, there could be delays at the border. So that actually helped economic output in the UK in the first quarter but we think that will probably have the the opposite effect for the rest of the year because they will be running down those stockpiles so we won't see that same that same benefit indeed we'll see lower economic outputs but there's that but there's also the fact that when you stockpile you have to tie up cash you you have to spend money on bringing that product in and that's cash that you would otherwise be using to invest in say new machinery as we mentioned in our story we found an example where a firm wanted to buy a new machine but it just didn't have the, the, the money to do so because it was tied up in their stockpile. So there are real world impacts and harms that come about when you have to allocate cash in this way, especially if you're a small business, you don't have much cash to operate with in terms of your cash flow and what's available to you. So that can become quite a problem.
0: And that's Joe Mays. Taylor, we get so caught up in the political back and forth, Theresa May versus the world, Theresa May versus her own party, all of the ebbs and flows of that. But this is ultimately a business and economic story.
2: It's an all business and economic story. And the fact really that they're sort of importing inflation, given the devaluation of the pound, of course, trading below 130 per U.S. dollar.
0: So, Taylor, Google has become synonymous with so many different things. We use it all the time. But thinking about it in terms of space, that's new.
2: Well, and some satellites, too, that we have coming up, and it's called what I love about the name of Google's satellite is Orbital Insights, because it's insights into how you can use that data to really benefit you.
0: And so when we think about space, we naturally (laughs) think about Ashley Vance. I confess, I shouldn't say this on air. He's one of my favorite writers out there. He joins us from San Francisco. So Ashley, take us inside this project, because it's a fascinating one.
8: So Orbital Insight is is, uh, is a startup um, that was founded in, in 2013, and the the founders, this guy named James Crawford, he, he used to work at Google on the Google Book Search project and a lot of other AI stuff at NASA, and he kind of had this insight, which was that a lot of cheap, small satellites were starting to be launched that were going to surround the Earth and, and start taking a lot more pictures of it. Uh, traditionally, Pictures actually of the Earth are rare and expensive. And he saw this day coming when there'd be tons of them and that if you applied some AI software and and some analysis to all these pictures, you could start to, to learn some pretty interesting things about how the planet operates.
0: Well, and as I was reading the story, Taylor, I was I started to think about the idea of. I remember hedge funds, you know, like tracking cars and parking lots and things like that. Yeah. And of course, as I got through the story, that's exactly where Ashley ends up. So tell us about how and what the data are that are being collected.
8: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, uh, there's a couple companies doing this. Orbital Insight is is seems to be the leader in this this kind of nascent market but like you mentioned you know they they count things they use these satellite images to peer down at the earth and so they can count things like the number of cars in a walmart parking lot to see how busy the back to school shopping season is they can look at at crops to see how healthy the corn is and to predict the what the yield would be and over the years they've added a ton of stuff that they count they they can track all the oil that's being stored in china um these days they add GPS data that's that's gathered from people's smartphones to actually know how many people are working inside of a factory, how many people are actually visiting a mall. And and so, you know, they take all this information and then start to make um, basically economic Predictions about the health of the worldwide economy.
2: Well, and I love that you can make financial insights into this, right? And I mean, who knew that at the time, being able to take photographs of a car could give you insight into the health of a company, of that parking lot, etc. And as we take a look at some other things that these are used for, you also mention a sort of a subsector in there called Orbital Go, which is where more personal users can go in as a self-service application. Describe that to us as well.
8: Right. That's basically that's what the companies. Launching as of this month, and and traditionally this stuff has been pretty hard to use. And if you wanted to to. Run analysis on these images that Orbital gathers. In a lot of cases, you were working hand in hand with Orbital to, to code this thing up. Tell them your specific problem, and and they were almost like a consulting firm where they were walking you through what to do. So this product, Orbital Go, um, it's taken them a few years to develop this, but it's it's much more like you what you would think of when you hop onto to Google or Google Maps or Google Earth, uh, where you just get this console. You can say, you know, I want to count, um, I want to count how many houses are going up in Houston, and I want it to be from January to June, and I want it to be in just this part of Houston, and you literally just circle the map of the part that you're looking at, and then you click enter, and and now the software just runs off and, and runs the analysis and then spits the answer back to you, and so this is... You, th- this technology, it's taken a while for people to even know that it exists and and that it was hard to use. And so this is a step toward uh, regular people can kind of hop on and poke around and see if there's anything useful in this type of data. So, Ashley, talk to us about the A.I. here, because, as you mentioned,
0: uh, Mr. Crawford has a lot of A.I. background, a tour at NASA, uh, you know, working on the Mars rover. I mean, this is some really cool stuff that you know a lot about. AI involves ultimately, on a very simplistic level, humans essentially teaching computers how to think. How does that work? And, and what are the implications of making machines smarter in this analysis?
8: This is one of my favorite parts of the story. So in the case of something like the new houses in Houston, they'll get pictures where you see a foundation being laid, where you see a frame going up, and then you see a final house being constructed. And they want to know each stage of this process, but the computers on their own... Wouldn't be able to distinguish one of these things from the other. So they have contract workers who they've been training over the last couple of years who will actually go in and click the images and say, that's a foundation, that's a frame, that's a finished house. And then over time, the computer does that on its own and it can distinguish between these three different things. And what we've seen with Orbital is it used to take them quite a number of months to do something new like track corn yield or track housing starts and as this team of contractors have gotten better as Orbital's own AI software has gotten better now they're able to fire up new things to count in just a few weeks and uh, I just find it funny pretty much all this AI stuff that, that we see in the market these days there's always a human who has to train this machine that's right. eventually going to replace them um, and you know it's just interesting to see how quickly Orbital's been able to, to speed up this process
2: I mean as we've been talking, I think the classic big data question has really come to my mind of are there any concerns about privacy? You know, you wonders are able to search a neighborhood and look for specific homes or parking lots. Are there any big data privacy concerns, or because it's from a satellite in space, it's free reign.
0: Well, and especially as they're connecting this, as you said earlier, Ashley, to GPS data, mm-hmm. presumably there's data being pulled from phones. This feels a little bit intrusive, maybe?
8: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. On one hand, these satellites, most of the images, they can't see a person's face. They can barely recognize that a car is a car and and they can't see the license plate or something like that Um, so that might make you feel a little bit better the rest of it can get a little bit creepy i mean you know these guys are are watching the world 24 7 Um, they they know what's happening in a lot of cases before the rest of the world knows what's going on the the gps data is anonymized but that seemed weird to me they these guys literally know there's X number of employees actually inside a Tesla factory and then they can go and look at the pictures of the number of cars that have been produced by that factory sitting in the lot and and so they can make a guess about how efficient the the factory is. And so a lot of this is anonymized and from far away, it is a little creepy. It's just, just as kind of creepy as everything else that seems to be going on these days.
2: That's Ashley Vance, Jason. This story fascinated me so much because in my head, the first thing that popped up is hedge funds shorting a company based on if their parking lot is empty and consumers aren't going in there, for example, let's say like a back to school season. Right.
0: And this really going to the next level in the sense that we're going to be able to get on and really customize that information using all these things floating in space
2: what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand no Jason this is actually on my running playlist that song
0: how fitting
2: I love it Chris knew that I was uh, training for my 11th marathon so he decided to come in and wow, get me what a into flex. shape for this one so we have Chris Rondo who's the chief executive officer of planet Fitness it's so awesome to have you here Thanks for having me. I first want to start with your story. Why would I want to join Planet Fitness over, really, a dozen other competitors here in New York?
9: Sure, absolutely. It's a good question. I get that a lot. And first, with the outside looking in, you say, well, it's super affordable, $10 a month. Even here in Manhattan, it's 10 bucks a month. We're 10 bucks a month nationwide for a membership. But honestly, it's our atmosphere component that really makes our model work. And if you look at today, 20% of the U.S. population has a gym membership. That's it. And the rest of the industry is really fighting after the same 20%. So you can't see membership at Orange Theory, you go to Equinox, Equinox, then you go to SoulCycle. You gotta bounce around. Mm. With our members, we're going after the 80%. We're going after the people that have either never worked out before, or maybe haven't done it in 10 or 20 years. And they want to give it a shot. So we take out all the intimidation. So if you're coming in, it's that old saying, I better get in shape before I join a gym. We're the answer to that. And almost 40% of our members
0: never belong to a gym in their life. And so Chris, how do you hang on to them? Because how do you, keep them in a way that they don't sort of walk in, get fit, and then like, well, maybe maybe now I'm going to Equinox because – it's, you know, got all the bells and whistles and the keels products and the locker rooms <laughs> and all that. What, what's your, what's your uh, strategy there? Yeah, first I'd say we
9: give, we give a great product. So our clubs, we have the same treadmill you'll find the most $200 a month clubs, believe it or not. A lot of value, 20,000 square feet, beautiful tile locker rooms, granite countertops. So we give a lot of value. I like to say I built a $50 a month club. I just charge $10 a month for it. But honestly, when people leave us, unfortunately they leave for the coach. It's because of mm non-use. So they don't really necessarily graduate up. They fall off the wagon, they get busy, they have kids, they fall off, you know, off the normal routine, and we just want them back. So we make cancellation very easy in our gyms. We say, i probably say we have the easiest cancellation policy, because we just want them back when they come back on on the wagon. And and honestly, today, we have 13.6 million members. 20% of those have been members at least one time in their past.
2: Well, part of your story as well is the growing up population, these millennials, One of your strategies is looking at the Teen Summer Challenge. And uh, Jason was reading an analyst note from Piper Jaffray. They have an overweight on the stock, a price target of about 84. They put out this note a few weeks ago, but they really did cite this Teen Summer Challenge, which offers teens a free summer membership. As really a great long term marketing tool, and then I would argue mm-hmm. a great way to start to hook them early, <laughs> get them into the gym to become lifelong members.
9: Sure. You know, first and foremost, it's the right thing to do. And look at, you know, build self confidence, self esteem. We look at a lot of bullying that you see on TV today, unfortunately. And also introduce them to wellness and fitness. You know, today we have 13.6 million members, almost half are millennial. And we developed this business in the 90s. They were barely being born. Now they make up half our members. And millennials are reported to be more physically active than millennials, the Gen Z population or other. So we look at the Gen Z population, they're just turning 21 today. So the propensity to join is really starting to happen. So if we can get ahead of that, introduce them to the brand early, which is why the Summer Teen Challenge, we did it last year in New Hampshire. We're rolling it out nationwide this year. All high school teens, 15 to 18, work out for free, no strings attached all summer. Um, just parents come in, sign them up, get them into the, in the gym, we'll teach them how to work out, we'll
0: give them uh, all the instruction, no, no, uh, no charge for that.
9: And hopefully long-term, it introduce them to fitness.
0: So Chris, I'm actually out in Los Angeles, a lot of fitness brands there, and a lot of talk around the at-home experience, the multimedia experience, You know, Peloton obviously has led the way, but you also have Tonal, you have Mirror, you have various people coming up with these apps that are really rich in content. How does that figure into both the competitive set for you and maybe some of your plans going forward? Yeah, I'd say first, I love the exposure to fitness
9: just for the industry, between the apps, the wearables, it goes on and on, you can't get away from it, which I think is why you see the millennial population working out, the Z population more active. So I think it's all good for the industry. Um, when you look at, it, especially like the mirror Peloton, it's expensive, it's yeah. pricey, it's not, you know, we're $10 a month, it's a big difference for that, but um, I think at-home fitness, and it's been around forever, whether it was Billy Blanks with Tai Bo in the 90s, right. or it was, it was P90X, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Beachbody, and, all of it, right? Yeah, so I think it's a great um, supplement but I really think the bricks and mortar experience—you know, the variety of equipment, changes—you know, you can always use different workouts. I think that being around other people, I think, is motivating. It's also when you think about our lives today, you know, you're 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 never even on the phone anymore. It's all text and email. Mm-hmm human exposure is great you get out 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 of your house and i think it's a great supplement for the bricks and mortar but i don't think it's really the end-all
0: be-all
2: that's planet fitness ceo chris rondo
0: i love that conversation because taylor that one hit home for both of us we both love working out running and all of this and we think about it as this high-end pursuit what rondo and his team have really figured out is you can get a lot of people in the door at a much lower cost.
2: Well, you start to track them young and early with the teen program. And then, of course, uh, you and I need to step up our marathon game.
0: So it's fair to say it'd be nice to be in Monaco.
2: I mean, always. But especially, look, in the US, we have the Indy 500 coming up in Memorial Day. And then you go over to Monaco, there's the Monaco Grand Prix. So much race car driving going on. And I want to learn more about it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do it. Chris Rouser is here, it's the lead of the pursuit section in Bloomberg Business Week this week. Take us to Monaco, fast cars. Yeah, fast cars, fast people. Um, It's,
1: uh, you know, the the Monaco Grand Prix uh, started in 1929, and it's been running every year since 1955. I've never been, but our car columnist, Hannah, has been. And I said to her, you know what? People want to know what this is. Yes. Like. This is a crazy, intense experience with the car cars racing through the streets of Monaco. What's it like? How much does it cost? Who's there? And she gave us all the rundown. And it's it's really cool.
0: You really had to twist her arm to be like, <laughs> please write this story. Please go to Monaco and tell me everything yeah. that you see. No, and no, it, it actually hard. is a really nice story, too, because you get this sense First of all, of the scale of it, and then just the high cottonness of it all, right? Yeah, it's just a, it's one of those things where like lots of people with sort of what we call
1: outward-facing wealth get together. <laughs> this is not a subtle uh, environment. This yeah. is where people with huge yachts. It's you know it costs ten thousand dollars to get into nightclubs that night, eight thousand dollar night hotel rooms, and these people, you know, it's it's famous people. It's Drake, it's Elton John, um, it's billionaires, and they're all coming to watch this race, which is a real adrenaline rush because it's right through the streets. It's laps and laps and laps, 160 miles, um, and it's just a thrill.
2: Tell us about the people, the drivers, the cars, because that's yeah. really the clear attraction.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the attraction is like the writs of it, you know, and the, and the parties. But the race is very cool. Um, and, you know, Lewis Hamilton has been winning for Mercedes uh, this year in Formula One. And it, he he's probably going to win again. I mean, it, uh, they kind of have the most money and they've been doing the, the sort of the best. He just won in Barcelona. Um, and John Malone, who owns Formula One, actually wants to change that. Yeah. It's it's, a little... There's a
0: nice callback. To a story we had just a couple weeks ago around John Malone and really wanting to shake it up because – the same people keep winning. The same teams mm-hmm. uh, keep winning this race, and it's not good for business. Yeah, it's basically Red Bull uh, and Mercedes, and even Red Bull
1: can't catch up with Mercedes this year. So that's not that's not good for business. Exactly, it's not. People don't want to come see something where they know who's going to win already. But people love Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, um, and he lives in Monaco, so this is kind of like his home turf. Uh, so you know, it, it's fun to root for him there at least.
0: Well, and one of the amazing things I did not know this about Monaco: it is tiny. Yes. I mean. It's the size. Am I getting this right? Of Central Park? Yeah, it's the second smallest
1: country in the world. The small, the Vatican City is smaller, and it's smaller than Central Park. It's less than a square mile.
2: That's crazy. So, but then put this into perspective of us about how this sort of compares to the, some of the other races that we've seen in terms of like the money and, and what else is involved.
1: Yeah, so this brings in about a hundred million dollars, um, and it uh, you know there's races all over the world, and there's some very cool ones. There's like a night race in Singapore, oh. um, but this is the one. This is like the most uh, ritzy in terms of who goes. So Monaco. So most cities actually have to pay Formula One to for the benefit right. of I having Formula One come to their city because everybody makes money off of it. Uh, but Monaco doesn't have to pay anywhere. It's like thirty million dollars. They don't have to pay. I basically. love that. <laughs> but I
0: love that element too. That you know, Monaco's like, oh, oh, other people have to pay we're not going to do that. <laughs> and it's not that they don't have the money. Right. No, exactly. A trillion dollars sitting
1: untaxed in Monaco bank account. Yeah, that's what they Oh my have god. A trillion dollars sitting there. That's why, you know, people want to people want to go visit and then they want to live there.
0: Right. So let's talk about that because mm-hmm. real estate in Monaco is a whole different ball game to say the least. What do we need to know there? Well, so Mr. Taylor's you're the market,
1: of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So real estate has gone absolutely bananas in Monaco, and it's for a lot of different reasons. Partially, it's because of Brexit; a lot of the UK wealthy just don't know what's going to happen, so they're moving. But it's also because it's a, a very light tax regime. So there's no, there's very low inheritance tax. There's no income tax, um, no capital gains, uh, and so you know a lot of people are moving there, and uh, it's become the most expensive city in the world to buy luxury real estate, beating Hong Kong, which which forever was the number one.
2: Take us through some of the apartments. I know that we have some... Incredible photos in the magazine this week talking about these new sort of condo, modern condos, but they are pricey, like you say.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we focus on one development in particular called One Monte Carlo, which is actually a rental building. Uh, it's almost more of a complex. And, you know, if you rent there and you, you meet the other sort of residency requirements, which is you have to sort of have a certain amount of money uh, on land in Monaco, um, you get the benefits of residency and you get to be in that tax regime. So, the One Monte Carlo is this huge new. Um, development by a developer, Ivan Harbor. It's 37 apartments and the annual rents go from 250,000 euros a year to 3 million euros a year. That's rent.
0: The average price per square meter in Monaco uh, is 48,800 euros. Yeah, so
1: that's like $4,500 uh, per square foot. So if you think about New York, which is very expensive, so I live in Brooklyn, it's probably about $1,000 a square foot Yeah, Brooklyn, more than four times that. Yeah crazy
2: you talk about the differences as well between being a u.s. citizen and the requirements to go there versus being a french citizen and there is a difference in monetary value as well in terms of what you need in your bank account right
1: yeah well so they you don't if you're american you pay taxes wherever you are and if you're french they don't make it easy if you're french you don't really get the benefits from moving to monaco so you don't see a lot of americans and french people doing it but it's it's the global wealthy that are going there
0: right all right, let's talk a little bit about watches, one of yes, your favorite, favorite <laughs> subjects. Uh,
1: bronze, yes. So for the past few years, uh, watchmakers, really high-end watchmakers, have been using the metal bronze for cases and bracelets and watches. And for a long time, they didn't because bronze uh, patinas; it turns, it can turn brown. Basically, it's not a; uh, it's like a living metal, basically, so it doesn't keep that shine that you originally see on it. And but then as time went by, um, the the technology got a little better, the alloys got a little better, so watchmakers figured out a way to make it, the bronze will patina and it will age with you, so it's kind of a little record of your life, but it doesn't, it's still shiny and nice. Um, So, you know, we started seeing Panerai in 2011, started making bronze watches. They had one called the Bronzo. Uh, Tudor in 2016 had the Black Bay Bronze, which was a big one. And Zenith also has uh, sort of had bronze watches in their history, and they started making them in 2015.
2: And how much are these costing us?
1: Uh, These these vary there's Anonymous makes one that's like $4,600 uh, IWC makes one that's about $6,000 um, and they can go up to $16,000 or more
2: hmm. Just a cool 16000 So you
0: could buy one of those for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a like a thank you. A little
2: appreciation. Right, yeah, just, yeah. Like, like, just like love yeah. hosting. is
0: great. It's the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I could wear it with my beach blazer, right? <laughs> yes, you could. Still my favorite You're story not, of the year. We'll never, about talking it. About we'll never stop beach, talking right? about yeah. the beach blazer. Uh, <laughs> one thing that I love talking about, too, James Tarmy has a book review. Oh, yeah, I know. Fascinating and some names familiar to people, certainly people who know about the art world. Tell us about this book.
1: Yeah, so, um Michael Schneerson, who's a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, has a book called Boom, Mad Money, Mega Dealers, and the Rise of Contemporary Art. And it's basically a look back at the, you know, overheated uh, contemporary art market that we've had since basically, you know, the 80s. Um, And it tells the story of a lot of different people, but primarily Leo Castelli, who started uh, being an art dealer out of his father-in-law's townhouse in the 50s. Uh, And then he sort of spawned all these other uh, gallerists, including his protege, Larry Gagosian, who really created the art market that we know. Right. It's
0: arguably like, if you don't know much at all about this, Mm -hmm. that's the name you know, right? Gagosian.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he, you know... um, It's a fun book because there's a lot of, there's like a a little bit of backstabbing, a little bit of like rule breaking, but basically, you know, there's just great observations. Like Gagosian discovered that his client, like the more he charged for art, the more his clients wanted it. He was the first person to be like, if I raise the prices, people will think this is worth investing in and they'll compete to buy it.
2: Well, and what I really love is it sort of brings together two worlds of the client and then the. The, the dealer, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and how typically you think that the client's really wealthy and, and you're just here to sort of facilitate a transaction. But really, he's raising the yeah. caliber of who he is as standard right? as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Gagosian uh, started making lots and lots of money from this. Uh, Mary Boone, also other gallerists like that. And, you know, they paid the artists too. Leo Castelli was one of the first people to give artists a stipend. So artists he worked with, he'd pay basically, you know, so they could live from month
0: to month. Uh, so they became very loyal to him. Right. And I also didn't fully appreciate some of the economics of the art and the artist in terms of the stipends that they were getting paid. There's a nice anecdote, even in this review about Basquiat and sort of what his art was worth, what his time was worth. And and then, of course, after he tragically died, it became worth that much more.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people say the money was what sort of ruined Basquiat's life. Um, So it's it. It's not always like a happy book, but it's a very interesting book for sure.
2: Now, I have to say, I am not a mom, but I'm a great aunt. Okay. And I'm <laughs> a really, really good babysitter. And you have this incredible story about this new baby monitor that mm-hmm. really can help us rest more easy at night. Jason knows all about that with the newborn. What does this do? What does this new data give us?
1: So the, the Miku is a baby monitor. It costs $400, and it gives you data on sound, on motion, temperature, humidity. It also tracks your baby's breathing uh, without having to wear a wearable device, which some other monitors, you have to strap something onto your baby. And the, the thing that we really liked about the Miku is that it presents that data in sort of a very trackable, very easily digestible way. So you can look at it on your phone and be like, okay, I know this is how we've been doing over the past couple of months. Um, And people sort of really appreciate that.
2: That's Pursuit's editor, Chris Brauser.
0: And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
2: And I'm Taylor Riggs. in for Carol Master. be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast, download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com.
2: You can get this week's edition of the magazine on stands now.
0: We'll be back right here next week at the same time.
2: This is Bloomberg.